Handy History Teaching Tips, blogs in a conversational style. Handy History Teaching Tips are conversational podcasts designed to help history teachers with tips, examples and ideas about history teaching. Sally Thorne, that's me, is a head of department and senior examiner. Helen Snelson was a head of department and now trains history teachers. Between us, we have more years classroom history teaching experience than we are going to admit here. Both of us regularly write resources and present at conferences. We are proudly history specific and practical in our approach. Our hope is that this podcast will become something of a problem page for history teachers. Think of Helen and I as your agony aunts. If you're wrestling with something particularly tricky and need some help, drop us an email at handyhistoryteachingtips at gmail.com or tweet us. I'm at Mrs Thorne and Helen is at Snelson H. And we will see what we can cook up between us. This episode is part of a series explaining the meaning and scope of the disciplinary concepts in school history. And today we're going to talk about similarity and difference. Yeah. um, Now, I honestly think that similarity and difference is completely poised to have a moment um, in history teaching at the moment. And that's because I just keep hearing the word spectrum used by students in a way that it never used to be. I I know that I I now teach in the middle of woke Bristol and my students tell me off if I refer to God using a male pronoun. But I'm given to understand that this this idea of of fluidity, gender fluidity, isn't just an urban thing. And I think that this is helping to make young people far less binary in their thinking than they were when I started teaching. Um, and so anyway, that that is a, an example of something that makes it then much easier to reference the past as a spectrum of experiences rather than just one homogenous block of the past. That's that's a really interesting observation. And, and the thing I, I really love about um, similarity and difference as a concept is that it, it gives us carte blanche to develop a really strong sense of period in our, our students. And the, the, the more knowledge you've got as well, the better I think you're going to be at, mm. at operating with this, this concept. So um, you, what do you want an inquiry about your favourite time period, maybe, but, but nothing much happens. I think similarity and difference if you get into that, then you've got you've got all sorts of possibilities for opening up all sorts of avenues for exploring different topics. Um, so I think it's, for example, really important to know about the Anglo-Saxons. You know, you might not think you can wrestle them into a causation inquiry, but my goodness, you can get in there with the uh, similarity and uh, and difference. Although it's interesting, isn't it, that as a concept, as we've looked back, we felt it's possibly not one of the most strongly sort of picked over and raked over by history teachers thus far no no and I I, um I think it's you know there's a lot of overlap with our um second order concepts that we've been taught and we've mentioned that before but um you know I I remember um Catherine Byrne once remarking that what some people think is similarity and difference is really change and so I've obviously lived in fear of becoming that person ever since and I avoid looking at similarity and difference in different time periods um to try and and instead what I my favorite way to use it has been looking at different groups of people living in a similar time period and then um kind of use it to introduce improved diversity into my curriculum so those that's the the way I use it yeah there's some very very important things there aren't there about about categorization about Mm. giving students the language and mental powers to be able to adequately group people into the past in a way that we have to do but into meaningful blocks that don't demean and depersonalize them that I think keeps that very important thing that that Ian Dawson 
always talk so eloquently about and the idea of respecting everybody in the past as we would any human being until they have done something that for which they have lost our respect. Um, and I think recognising as well that um, there's there's such intersection in, in different categories um, as there is in people's identities and that they're not utterly static. So I know when I... Um, I felt as though I had a real breakthrough when I was teaching the uh, Germany topic um, for GCSE, you know, the classics of 1919 to 45, when I began um, one year giving every child in the class um, a fictional character to to latch onto, um, which I know some people immediately go, oh my God, a fictional character. But but no, it did work. And, and basically, this was just a little, little paragraph about a person who, who could have been. So... Um, you know, Marta or whoever, the young woman living in Berlin, um, dreaming of being in a cabaret, working in a factory with a Jewish grandmother, as opposed to um, Hans, who was the Bavarian farmer, who was a veteran of World War One and very proud of his medals and a, and a Roman Catholic, and just gave people, um, uh, gave the kids a little sketch of a person who had a, a, a proper possible identity. And every so often then in the narrative of developing from 1919 to 45, we would stop about five ten minutes maybe at the end of a lesson or the beginning of a lesson sometimes even in the middle and we discuss how each character might be experiencing or responding to an event we were studying or to a person one of the very famous people that we were studying mm -hmm. including how likely they were to be listening to extremist views these characters and what it showed them in quite I think a light touch but quite effective way um, was that people experienced the same events differently and um that their responses were not uh, binary it wasn't like oh i'm a nazi i'm not a nazi it was like oh well i quite like that that they're saying but then i've got a jewish grandmother or, or whatever and that their position also could could shift as well so um obviously classically as you went through the the period of 1929 those that had um problems economically or whatever who'd lost lost jobs or were vulnerable might be perhaps going to be listening to more extremist views um and i found that that really helped them when it came to answering a question such as say what was life like for women in nazi germany instead of being a bit stumped because they'd got women all in one block they could think of ah oh, but this could be a woman who's jewish or this could be a woman who's living in a rural area or this could be a woman who's from a very strong roman catholic background or a woman who's living in um, a big city such as hamburg and berlin and as soon as you can imagine a, a, a response like that then then Firstly, it's a more um, diverse look at history, but also you're going to find it much more easy to to answer a question about life for women in Germany without clumping them all together and having one point and not three. Yeah. Yeah. And this sort of kind of recognition that 50 percent of the population does not all think and act and behave the same is a, is a helpful, helpful point to make. Yeah. Would be nice um, if we could win that one, wouldn't it? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, so yeah, and I, you know, that's that's a great idea. And and what I've been doing with mine, in, in particularly in year seven, is um, we've started spending some time. Obviously, we, we look at medieval England, you know, like I suppose ninety nine percent of the schools in in this country. But then we spin the globe to look at um, medieval Islamic and African empires at the same time. Um, considering specifically how similar or different the experiences of people living in these places were. Um, and I was really inspired by Toby Green's lecture that he gave as part of the HA Fellowship I did last year on transatlantic slavery. And, and he's been running 
um, webinars with Trevor Getz on medieval Africa arranged by Nick Dennis. They've been great. So anyway, in his lecture, he pointed out that a citizen of, of the Senegambia region in the 15th century would have had far more in common with a Portuguese citizen than someone from from Congo, for example. Arabic was a shared language. Islam was a common religion. Um, so whereas all um, Senegambia and Congo have in common is a, is a continent. So he was really making the point that, you know, we, we tend to talk about Africa as one homogenous block, um, but we don't tend to talk about Europe in the same way. And so I think that's it's, it's also really important to um, consider similarity and difference of um, of experience in, you know, in different regions. Gosh, yes, that's really important, isn't it? It includes when you're teaching something like the American West and or, or even uh, black civil rights in America as well. And the idea of the difference between the states that kids won't necessarily know about unless you really explicitly teach it. Yeah. There's, and there's been such a good buzz um, about creating also a less Eurocentric curriculum, hasn't there? Particularly since the Royal Historical Society report on race and ethnicity came out in 2018. And using a similarity and difference angle can be a really good way to start making your curriculum more representative from, from the grassroots up. Yeah, absolutely. And it doesn't need to be like a really long involved inquiry either. And, you know, when we when we talked about change and continuity, we talked about how you can add in bridging lessons, looking at a change through time topic, um, you know, over one or two lessons. Um, and similarity and difference lessons can be used to bridge two topics um, in a similar way, I think. Um, or they can be included within a wider inquiry as, as just kind of a, a recognition that actually there is a diversity of experience. Yeah, Ruth Lingard and I are currently um, doing some work, which actually we were going to present at the HA conference. So we will do it at, at some point in some way about um, individual stories across the 17th century. And we've taken a focus of, of, of Britain, although we've definitely gone for Britain as well. So we haven't just gone for for southeast england which often is the story that gets told um we've even got northwest england we've got wales we've got scotland we've got ireland but we've also got the uh the people who are who are british but who at this point are already living over in in, in a place that's been colonized and, and their interaction and relationship with 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 different peoples so we've gone for um a diversity of of geography but we've also gone for definitely a gender um a diversity and a diversity of ethnicity also um and what we're trying to to draw out and and our suggestion is not that this will be a whole inquiry but that it will possibly be the introduction to then whatever your inquiry is going to be on the civil war but it it, it introduces the century as a diversely experienced thing mm. um and also gets into the idea immediately that this huge event in the middle of it that you're probably going to have a look at this the sort of whole civil war and protectorate period has very similar and and different um, consequences for people depending on where you are and who you are and and, and what your experiences were and how far it impacts you um, yeah so looking forward to sharing that with people because I think there's quite a lot in there that will open up some of this yeah I think that sounds great I always feel like there's a bit of a a blip for me in the 17th century because it is just all about it for me it's always just been about the civil war you don't really think about the people at the bottom of that so I look forward to that yeah, um, <laughs> and uh so I've um I was thinking about my World War One inquiry that I've mentioned before, and we look at why soldiers from the wider British Empire signed up for the army, and that's kind of how we look at it at the moment. But in the past, I've tried to avoid just the suggestion that World War One is just a muddy trench in northern France. Um, you know, so we've included a lesson on trench warfare in Turkey. I think I think it's modern day Turkey. So using the like really powerful descriptions from Louis de Bernier's Birds Without Wings about what it was like to fight in a trench in a 40 degree heat and and kind of how different it was. 
um yeah so that's that was always a really good way in for me it's a really helpful way as well that of getting students to use the the, the right language we we seem to come to back to that quite a bit don't we when we're talking but as for so many things for similarity and difference they really need to get used to that to that tentative language not to be black white binary um over generalizing over stereotyping um so some people and potentially and at certain points in time and yeah. well perhaps but then there's also this aspect yeah yes yeah and I, when I was doing the background reading for this conversation I, I came across Christine Council's generalization game which is cunning plan in teaching history 135 and I did used to do that but for some reason I don't do it anymore and I I'm definitely well, as soon as I can get back into school that's something that I'm going to be bringing back though because it's like become my crusade against the use of the word they and I'm definitely as guilty of it as the kids are but you know the students often will talk about they did this and they did that and and really the, the, Christine's game is aimed at avoiding these sort of like homogenous blocks that I mentioned before and and trying to break up those groups into meaningful categories so not everyone was Protestant in Elizabeth's reign but you know, you've got moderate Protestants and Puritans and masquerading Catholics and strict Catholics and those who didn't really mind. They just wanted to go to church and, and get on with their lives. You know, and what and what about other religions that there might have been in England at the time? So I think a goal in similarity and different studies is to be able to make generalisations about groups of people. Um, but attention really needs to be paid to where those generalisations are applied and then the language that we use to frame them. So maybe instead we arrive at the majority of English people followed Protestantism in Elizabeth's reign. Yeah, that's really, that's really interesting, getting the kids to talk like that. But, you know, I think as well, we've got to do a lot of work on our own teacher talk. This is something I have spent so long trying to drill myself to do, is to really observe my teacher talk. So if I'm talking about um, Germany in 1929 and the actions in Berlin, I'm not saying the Germans are doing this, but the social democratic government or um slightly better the German you know slightly worse the German government but at least not the Germans or the yeah. French or because it's it's not whole blocks of people um or when I'm talking to the A-level students it's not sort of like the Reichstag it's the um uh, Zentrum group in the Reichstag and actually um yes of course we have to categorize and group to 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 hold conversations about history but but not to a point where it distorts fact and again disrespects people who lived in the past so that really careful sense of of how you use language I mean another one that's sort of later is when I hear people say we about sort of the British in World War Two. it's like no we weren't even there but that's yes. another <laughs> as well but but yeah this whole very very careful teacher talk about let's not lump people together in any way shape or form and I think that's that's all connected into this Mm, definitely. But as well as going small scale, um, we, we can also use this concept, can't we, to, to tie together a few smaller inquiries with one bigger question. And I know you've you've had some real success with this, Sally. Yeah. yeah. So in in year eight, we do a longer unit looking at the different ways that people were protesting in the late 18th and early 19th centuries. So we compare the French Revolution with the abolition movement in the UK and its colonies and British political um, protests like Peterloo and the Chartists. So um, I was inspired to this by the opening chapter of Bury the Chains and um, where I never say his name. I think it's Ho Shield. But <laughs> 
I don't know. I it looks like Hot Child. I mean, yeah, I, you recommended it to me, and it's one of my favourites. But in the opening chapter, you know, he identifies many of the protest mo- methods that we employ today as having been born in the, in the protest movements at the end of the long 18th century. And you know, you think about leafleting and and meetings and that sort of thing. Um, you know, the things that we do today that's when they were born um and actually so i've been inspired by tom allen on the collect collect uh, i can't say it curricularium to think about how i can extend this question into like a bigger overarching question that covers the whole of our year eight curriculum so i'm playing around with something like um how have people changed the world or um like how how what different ways have people affected change in the past that's sort of what i'm looking at at the moment Mm, yeah, that's great. And this has got to be a really um, good way in, I think, to getting a deeper understanding of substantive concepts. And when we're doing our curriculum mapping and thinking about how we're going to weave a developing understanding of key substantive concepts um, into our whole curriculum, um, such as, say, protest, maybe, or um, communism or parliament, then by using knowledge of different ways that people have protested, um, I think we can perhaps unpack things about the concept, which which may be helpful. It's but it, we've got to be very, 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 very careful with it because it's about trying to deepen the understanding of of protest as a concept. It's not about that's a better way of protesting. That oh, yeah. protesting that's the worst way of protesting. Pro, <laughs> I can't say that word now anyway. <laughs> protesting, um, and it's not also about coming to a definitive judgment. I think about you know there is this this is what protest means, but about just sort of occasionally saying okay let's let's explore some some points of of resonance, um, and let's try and broaden our understanding of this abstract concept of protest or perhaps say say communism in in different times different places i know the old a level used to look at uh, used to be called um for example liberal liberal democracies and would then look at um would start off with it uh, in the Evan, good old evans book with a look at ancient greece but then look at um france in revolution and then um uh, britain in that in that period of the early 19th century and and be inviting the the students to make uh contrast between the similarities and the differences in which in which democracy was developing really interesting yeah although I always felt like it was a little bit sad with those that they the 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 questions that the exam board asked never crossed over did they so they were only ever about one um but it was really yeah it was a really nice I mean I my colleague taught that and I taught totalitarian regimes and we certainly drew the comparisons ourselves um, in class, even if the even if they weren't required to do that, yeah. um, and I, I think it had the confidence, did they, to do it in the exams, really? But it was there if you. Yes, yes. and I think you, they they came to a deeper understanding of each one of those, um, each one of those strands by by comparing them, even if they yeah, even if they were never going to be expected to do that. Um, and I think uh, what I think is is also really important about this, and just to pick up on something you said, I think it's really important that you make it clear that there is no single right way of doing things in in the past. You know, when you look at diversity of experience and and how people have acted, you know, kids really like absolutes. I think they like to be told this is right and this is wrong, and that's that's the end of the story. But that's not real life. And I I think you know I feel like it's part of our job as a, as history educators to say look here is the the breadth of human experience. And you you can take from that what you will um but yeah i'm not going to stand here and tell you this is the right way to behave <laughs> yeah yeah and then of course there's always um room for the um 
good old historical inquiry question as well in the setup sequence. And um, as we were looking at this, we were looking at um, teaching history 135, which had articles in there that were um, really focused on this this concept um, and uh, lots of lots of good suggestions. So good, good place to um, start. Another one, there's some good stuff in teaching history 146 as well, isn't there? But uh, so what what have you come up with with that one, Sally? Yeah, I just um, I, what, what I'm thinking about at the moment is um, I've been quite inspired to look at the similarity and difference of women's experiences in late medieval England because I've been reading I was, was rereading um, Bring Up the Bodies before Mirror and the Light came out and um, there's that bit in there I just think it's so powerful where Mantel explains how women of different classes were able to tackle abuse and she concludes in in the writing that being a noble woman gave you the least amount of power to resist that you know if you were a, a poor woman and somebody beat you up then you could go and get a friend to come in and beat them up for you and if you were a city wife you could deal with it this way but you know that that these noble women have no agency in their own lives and I thought that was really interesting and it's on my list to kind of work on something around that um, for, for a future uh, feature in my um, probably year seven scheme of work. Mm, interesting yeah and I think they're really key to a good inquiry question on this is thinking about how students will be will be categorising, intersecting and cross-categorising groups and whether those categories are robust and fair, just to sort mm. of return to that a bit. I think it's also quite important to be to be thoughtful about both halves of this, so the similarities as well as the differences. So you want to be thinking about that when you're planning an, an inquiry. And if, yeah. if one of our soft aims as history educators is also to, I don't know if it's a soft aim, you know, but to create good <laughs> citizens. Well, I, you know, our day job is history teachers, but we're always trying to create good citizens of the world. Yeah. Please tell me that we are. We need them. Um, and, and hopefully a sort of more cohesive society as well. Then it can be really helpful to show that, that different groups of people um, often experience the same things. For example, your example of women suffering from domestic abuse. Um it's a sad truth that, that that is an experience shared by women of 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 all classes and all backgrounds so yeah I think that's very important to restate is that we've perhaps talked a lot about differences and actually the the similarities the ties that the ties that bind us are also yes. really important to draw out yeah I think that that idea of the ties that bind us is great and I, I think that you can you, you know you can also look at kind of big celebratory events and those might actually be nice your nice bridging lessons so look at um kind of uh, the great exhibition at Crystal Palace, for example, and use them as a window into a shared experience. So I'd, I love reading about the great exhibition. You've got people coming from all over the country. They've never been to London before. And they, you know, the whole village goes down to experience it at the same time. And that you could draw a nice parallel between that and the Millennium Dome um, and, and how people came from all over the country to, to visit that in the year 2000. So or um, like the Queen's coronation similarity and in, in experience of that. I just yeah, these these are the these are the things that that make us all one group together aren't they um, yeah you remind me of that um lovely uh, doctor who episode which they did around uh, you know everybody getting their telly for to, to watch the oh, uh, yeah <laughs> to watch the coronation and that sort of again binding moment yeah what have you been enjoying then on the uh, on the uh, digital uh, waves still continuing during lockdown yeah, well, I, I'm a member of um, of Historic Royal Palaces and I um, have been really enjoying the Lucy Worsley um, offerings. They're, they're trying to offer lots of things, as you can imagine, um, while they've been closed. So she's done some great lectures. I think she's doing one this week on, um, uh, I think it's fashion this week. So, yeah, that's been great to be involved in. How about you? 
Oh, fantastic. I've been really enjoying uh, the, the Hay Festival. I mean, I mm. a large part of me would love to be in a tent with a bacon sandwich uh, in a field in Wales. But since I can't do that, having, um, you know, people like Philippe Sands talking about uh, his book, The Rat Line, into my um, uh, study is just absolutely brilliant. And uh, last night I was listening to Simon Sharma talk about nationalism and um and michael wood then talking about china so yeah i'm i'm binging out on the hay festival this, this oh week. yeah that's, that's and there's so many like free lectures available online at the moment so i was looking at that is it massolit massolit it's just yeah. like really available now too has yeah. got yeah. lots of lectures on too i think it's just great that the people are so generous with their time um yeah, it's absolutely fab. okay well lovely okay. talking to you again yeah, Until nice to talk to you. Stay safe well.